Well, please do turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John's Gospel and chapter 2. We're going to read from John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. If you're using one of the Black Church Bibles, you'll find this reading on page number 1054. John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Let's hear the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, this is God's word. Let's pray to him and ask for his help as we look at this passage together. Gracious and almighty God, we praise you that you are a God who speaks, who speaks by your word. And we praise you for this passage of Holy Scripture that we've just read together now. And we ask that as we look at it more closely together, that you would be pleased to open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word, that we might rejoice in who you are and who your son, the Lord Jesus, is, and all that he has done for us. For we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, what do you do when you see a road sign? My parents live just a few minutes down the road from, from a place called Whipsnade Zoo. And when I drive home to see them, I drive past the zoo. And there, right by the road, is, is a sign. Triangular, brown, black background, a picture of an elephant on it. But what are you supposed to do when you see that? I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't, you don't look at it and you think to yourself, well, isn't that brown, black background really amazing? Oh, what a brilliant picture of an elephant. You don't get out of your car and, and, and stare at the sign and say to yourself, you know what, I could really look at this thing all day. You don't do that, do you? The point of the sign is to point you to something else. You're to look at that sign and be pointed to the zoo. Well, as we come to John's Gospel this morning, it's helpful to know that that this is a book that is full of signs. 
In fact, right at the end of the book, John gives us his purpose statement for writing the book. John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, we read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wants us to see who Jesus is. The Christ, God's anointed king. The one who's the son of God. And by seeing who Jesus is, he wants us to have life that's, that's found through believing in him. And how does John show us that? Well, it's be right by recording signs. Signs that Jesus did. I mean, it's very interesting. He uses that word signs, isn't it? I suspect if we were writing down the things that John records, we might have called them miracles. But John calls them signs. And they're remarkable signs. They're so remarkable, in fact, that it would be very easy to get fixated on the signs themselves. Wow, water changed into wine. Wow, 5,000 people fed with with a handful of fish and bread loaves. Oh, wow, the dead raised to life. But that would be to make the zoo sign mistake this morning. John's saying to us in his gospel, all these things, they're but signs. And they're to point you to, to who Jesus is, so that you might believe in him and have life in his name. Well, that brings us very nicely to our verses in John chapter 2 this morning, because you come to the last verse in our passage, and you discover that this is the first sign that John records. Look there in verse 11, we we, we read these words, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. What we have in these verses is designed to point us to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And to point us to to his supreme goodness and his splendor. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning very simply is this. How does that sign do it? How does it reveal to us Jesus' glory? And there are three parts to that answer that we find together in these verses this morning. Three answers that show us how this sign reveals Jesus' glory. And the first is this. By ushering in a new era. By ushering in a new era. You see, even before we get to the incident itself, John wants us to know that he's about to describe something that's really significant. John says in verse 1, right at the very beginning, on the third day. And this is the last of a a series of timestamps that John's been giving us. It would be very easy to miss that because because we're right at the start of a new chapter here. But but just flick back to chapter 1 for a moment so that you can see that. So look at chapter 1 and verse 29. John has been describing in verses 19 to 28 his first incident involving Jesus. And then he says, verse 29, the next day. So, so, so verses 1 to 19 to 28, they're day 1, and now we're at day 2. Or then look at verse 35, the next day, day 3. And then verse 43, the next day, day 4. And then finally we get to our verse, chapter 2 and verse 1, and we read, on the third day. 
by Jewish counting, that means two days later. Just like we say Jesus rose on the third day, and that's two days later. Well, same here. Two days later, taking us from day four to day six, if my maths is correct. So this is day six. You see, it's very obvious that that John is deliberately setting up for us Jesus' first week in the gospel. And why would he do that? Well, at the very least, he's deliberately mirroring the, the creation week. Back at the beginning of time. If you're in any doubt, look back at chapter 1 and verse 1. John says, in the beginning. No self-respecting Jew in the first century can read that without the alarm bells going off at this point. Genesis chapter 1, that's what that is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, John is setting the stage. Telling us that, that just as the old creation began in the beginning... So now a new creation is dawning. And just as the apex of the old creation was the creation of man in God's image on day six. So now here we are again on day six. And with this first sign, Jesus as he performs it. Jesus, the the, the image of the invisible God. He is being made known to his creation as he steps onto the stage. You see, this isn't just a a nice story to be read at bedtime or or a smiley story to to be preached on at weddings. Here is something that is far more significant. The claim of these verses that that we're confronted with this morning is that Jesus is coming to bring a new creation order. And with the coming of that new creation order, the old is being swept away. It becomes especially apparent as we reach verse 6 of our passage. Just before Jesus performs the sign of of turning water into wine, which I promise we'll get to in just a moment, we're given this editorial comment from John. He says, Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's about 80 to 120 litres if you're not into the old money. Now look, there are, there are some people who, 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 when you talk to them in life, they are just what you might call wafflers, aren't they? You, you know, they tell you these flowery stories with, with details that are just simply beyond the point. Utterly irrelevant details that leave you thinking, why on earth did you tell me that? Just stick to the point! Well, John is not a man given to random asides. When he tells you about these stone jars, it, it's not some sort of flowery detail where he's saying, well, you know what, guys, there just so happen to be these big jars and made out of stone of all things, and in fact, we'd normally use them for the Jewish ceremonial washings. No, it's an important detail. It's there for a reason. You see, these ceremonial washings that John refers to, they weren't actually prescribed in Old Testament law. They, they, they were just a ritual that had, had developed amongst the Jews over time. We're told more about them in Mark chapter 7, where Mark says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So you see, it was part of the traditions that had sprung up, an outward ritual that had developed. Given all the food at weddings then, it's just no surprise that these jars were there. But now Jesus takes them and he puts them to new use. The water is changed into wine. 
The old order of Jewish law and custom is being put to new use. Jesus takes these outward lifeless rituals and he turns them into something that is new. Something that is consumed like fine wine. Because that's what Jesus has come to do, you see. He's come to usher in a new era. I know since the arrival of COVID that we've all become much more interested in the idea of washing our hands, haven't we? But I doubt whether any of us engage in external hand-washing rituals for for religious reasons. Did did any of you come in this morning and think, well, if I'm going to be holy before God, I would need to wash my hands before I come in. I suspect it's unlikely. And yet outward ritual for its own sake. It might simply be Sunday service attendance. It might be saying a prayer superstitiously, just so that nothing goes wrong. It might be giving money to the church or or other good causes to keep in God's good books. But if you think Christianity is found in in these mere outward forms, you've missed the point. You're behind the times. They're like the lifeless, external, old order of things that, that Jesus has come to sweep away. He comes to usher in a new era. That should leave us asking then, what is so radically new about this? And how can he bring it about? And that brings us to our second heading this morning. Jesus has come firstly, uh, as you see, to usher in this new era. But secondly, he's come to usher in a new era of superabundant blessing and joy. You see, Jesus is acting here because a crisis has hit. His mother has come to him in verse 3, uttering the words that no one wants to hear at a wedding. They have no wine. I mean, it's the kind of thing you never live down, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding where this kind of thing happened. I remember going with my wife Anna to a a good friend's wedding, and the main course was pre-prepared. But dessert, eaten mess, was to be assembled last minute by friends like, like us. However, as the bride and the groom went away, taking their kind of idyllic pictures in the, in the English countryside, uh, one, of, one, of, one of the bridesmaids came to us, sort of wide-eyed in panic. No one had remembered to bring the whisks. How do you make the eat a mess if you haven't got a whisk? And so panic! Now, we were in this tiny village. You, you mustn't disturb the bride at this point, must you? And so you can just imagine the scene as, as Anna and other guests like myself, suitably formally attired, three-piece suit and so on, we go traipsing around the budgeons of the area looking for whisks, guests diverting from their roots all around the local area, desperately looking for the thing. It was quite something to behold. But embarrassing though it was for us all, you know, even if the worst had happened that day, no one would have held it against the newlyweds. They'd have quickly got over it. But you need to realise that, that in the culture of Jesus' day, running out of wine was, was precisely the kind of thing that would have been held against them. This was an honour-shame culture. And weddings were, were a really big deal. They were a seven-day affair. Far more hardcore than our, our British piddly afternoon jobs. And the whole town would often be invited. And if you were invited, well, it was socially inappropriate to say, no, you just didn't do that. This was a big deal. And so in such a context, then, it wasn't just a mild embarrassment to run out of wine. It wasn't the kind of thing where where people would look back on and chuckle at it. Oh, wasn't that funny? No, it was the kind of thing that led to shunning. You were looked on in disgrace. 
And so you can imagine then the kind of panic that, w- that was going on behind the scenes at this wedding. Mary, Jesus' mother, was, was probably getting involved because she was in some way or another connected to the bride or groom. We've got a crisis here. Her, or, or at least those near to her, are about to be sinking in shame. And yet from the lowest of depths, what is it that's produced? Vast quantities of wine. Now look at verse 6 again. These stone containers, they, they each held, as we said, about 80 to 120 litres. So, so do the math. There's, there's something in the region of 500 to 700 litres of wine here. A great abundance. And this isn't just any old wine. This isn't sort of Tesco value stuff. This is wine fit for a royal banquet. This is the good stuff. Hence verse 10, the master of the banquet is baffled. He tastes the wine and says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I mean, you don't need a lesson in intoxication from me. But but the more that people drink, the more their sense of reality dwindles. And so you just don't save the best stuff until last. It's quite literally wasted on those who have drunk too much. But that's what Jesus produces. Vast quantities of wine of glorious quality. And you know, it isn't incidental that this sign involves the production of fine wine. There are certain words, aren't there, that that just trigger connections instantly in our minds. So if I say to you this morning, God save our, immediately most of us are thinking, well, probably gracious queen, or perhaps gracious king. But those words, whatever they trigger, they trigger the national anthem, don't they, into our minds. Well, for first century Jewish readers, hearing of an abundance of fine wine would immediately get them making connections, joining the dots. You see, they knew what the Old Testament has to say about such things. That's why Henry read to us earlier from Isaiah chapter 25, where we read, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples... A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken You get exactly the same kind of thing in Amos chapter 9, where we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord, your God. These passages speak of a day that's coming that that brings abundant blessing and joy. Of wiping of all tears. Of abundant food and drink. Of stability, of security. A day that comes with with the dawning of the messianic era. And Jesus is now sounding the klaxon for us. He's saying that that his coming is is ushering that day in. 
A day of super abundant blessing and joy. You know, there's a, there's a common misconception that thinks that Christianity is a joyless religion. You might have actually got that misconception from, from observing Christians who very much give you that impression. Those whose joy is just so, so deep that it's, that it's just kind of hidden under the surface and you can never spot it. But Christianity is no joyless religion. It's not just about punching the clock. It's not just about doing your duty or, or, or those kind of things. If, if that's all your Christianity involves, I'm afraid you've rather missed the point this morning. No, to be brought into the kingdom of the messianic king is to be brought into the kingdom of, of super abundant joy. A joy that comes now, albeit tainted by, by living as sinful people in, in a world reeking under the effects of the fall. But joy that comes in its fullest and, and most ultimate way when this king, King Jesus, returns to consummate his kingdom. And so let me ask you, where do you look for satisfaction and joy in this life? Now, we're all creatures who look for joy, aren't we? And that's right, it's, it's the way we were made to be. The problem is that we go looking for it so often in the wrong places. C.S. Lewis famously put his finger on this problem when he said this. He said that we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He concludes. You see, it's not that we shouldn't enjoy the good gifts of the Creator in this life. Food, family, football, whatever it might be. These are things we can enjoy in reference to our Creator. But don't set your hope in these places. They won't provide you with ultimate satisfaction and joy. They'll just disappoint you. Lay off the mud pies. True joy is found in knowing Jesus, in being part of the age that he ushers in. Seek joy in knowing him. A famous Christian of the 4th century, a man called Augustine, put it like this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Why would you set your hopes in the candle flickers of this world? When you could come to the light of the world, who offers superabundant blessing and joy. And so we've seen then that, that this sign reveals Jesus' glory firstly by ushering in a new era. But secondly, that it's an era of superabundant blessing and joy. But thirdly, we discover that that, that era comes when Jesus' hour finally comes. When Jesus' hour finally comes. Now, really, we're honing in now on verse 4 of our passage. Which on the surface, at least, is a peculiar looking verse. Now, having been told by his mother that the wine stocks have run dry, Jesus replies to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, don't trip over the banana skin in what we've just read. When we read, Woman, what does this have to do with me? That sounds a little bit rude to us in English, doesn't it? If I was to come up to one of the ladies after the service this morning and say, Woman, good to see you! I don't think many of the ladies would think it was all that good to see me. But Jesus isn't being rude here. He's not breaking the fifth commandment. Perhaps slightly better than woman would be to translate as mom, as people would call the late queen. 
In other words, there's a respectfulness, but Jesus is nevertheless putting some distance between himself and his mother at this point. You see, Mary's agenda is all about the wine. She's worried about the shame and the indignation that's hurtling her way. But here in this phrase, Jesus shows us that there is a bigger agenda that's at play. The wine in and of itself, that's not the number one priority. Yes, he will gloriously end the shame. But ultimately, he's not come so much as to do his mother's will here, but to do his father's will. And those two things here don't perfectly coincide. And that's further seen for us by the, by the perplexing statement that follows on Jesus' lips when he says, My hour has not yet come. What do you mean, Jesus? Is he looking down at his watch because, because he's got a train to catch? What is this hour that he speaks of? But here is John, the, the master narrator at work. And this phrase, it becomes a, a repeated phrase throughout John's gospel. A sort of wink to the reader for what to look for. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. John chapter 7 and verse 30. So they, the Jews, were seeking to arrest him, Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Or John chapter 8 and verse 20. These words, he, that is Jesus, spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The reader should be straining their eyes, looking out for the arrival of this hour. When will it be? But then you reach the end of John chapter 12, and Jesus suddenly says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Or the start of chapter 13 puts it more bluntly as as to exactly what that means. John 13 verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come. To depart from this world to the Father. Now the hour has come. By that point we're we're in the last week of Jesus' life. That's the hour. And the hour he'll go to the Father. When he'll be lifted up on a cross. A cross to die. Before rising from the dead. And ascending to heaven in glory. You see Jesus is bringing that new messianic era of, of super abundant blessing and joy. But in saying here in verse 4 that my hour has not yet come, he's saying to us, it doesn't ultimately arrive at the wedding in Cana. Rather that wedding, it reveals his glory in, in expectant anticipation. Expectant anticipation of that day that's to come, when his hour would arrive at last. You see, Jesus has been born to die. In fact, it's very interesting in those verses we quoted earlier from Isaiah chapter 25 that it talks of the coming of the messianic era swallowing up death. But here's the great irony. Jesus brings that about through his own death. In this sign at Cana, Jesus removes shame and he brings great joy. But to bring the superabundant joy of his messianic age, he himself must endure the greatest of shame. I mean, just remember who he is. Think of those famous words about him at the start of John chapter 1. He is the Word. The one who was both with God and was God. There with God from the beginning. Through whom all things were made. Without whom nothing was made that was made. The second person of the Trinity. The infinite creator. The Lord of glory. 
And this one takes on flesh. The creator entering his creation. But not just that, as though though that were not low enough to sink. He's brought to the very lowest of places of all. He's brought to the shame and the humiliation of a Roman cross. Where bearing shame and mocking rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, so that we say, hallelujah, what a saviour. You see, that's where this sign is ultimately pointing us this morning. To the cross, where the messianic era was inaugurated. Where Jesus bought for himself a people who would be the bride of Christ. Awaiting the wedding par excellence. The wedding supper of the Lamb on that great last day. So that if you're a Christian this morning, you can say with the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, that though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Isn't that a glorious prospect, Christian? When you look at the world around you, there are many reasons why you might feel miserable or depressed this morning. Perhaps especially as we look at the news of this past week. As we see the continued suffering through the war in Ukraine. Or that horrific knife attack on the toddlers in France. Or think more generally of the discouragement of just how slow-going gospel progress seems to be in the UK. And we might be tempted to despair. But no, don't do that this morning. Because this day is coming. Because this king's hour has already come. Here in John chapter 2, the guests, they, they ironically praise the bridegroom for the fine wine. And Jesus himself steps into the background. But there at the wedding supper of the Lamb, all the praise and all the glory they will, that will go to him. We can say with another hymn writer, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. We will not gaze on glory, but on our King of grace. Not at the crown he gives us, but at his nail-pierced hands. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And so wait longingly for that day. That day when we will cry with all God's people, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. So then don't get fixated with the sign. See the sign and look to the Saviour. And not just those who already know and love the Lord Jesus this morning, but that's also true if you're not yet a Christian this morning. You see, the right response to Jesus is found right at the end of our verses, with Jesus' disciples down in verse 11. Look there at the end of that verse. This sign manifested Jesus' glory, and his disciples believed in him. You see, they trusted that Jesus is who he says he is. They leaned the whole weight of their dependence upon him. And if you're not yet a Christian, that's what you need to do too. You see, Jesus is not just a a miracle worker, as great as that would be. He didn't just come to, to perform party tricks at weddings. He came ultimately to die for those who would believe in him. Those who would see the shame of their sin. Who would see the utter humiliation they face when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
But those who seeing those things run to the Lord Jesus. Who ask for his forgiveness. Who lean the whole weight of their dependence on him. You know if you do that this morning you will be welcomed into his kingdom. You will be welcomed into that kingdom of of super abundant blessing and joy. Oh that when Jesus the bridegroom returns to claim his bride the church. All of us this morning might be found united to him. Because we haven't just looked at the sign, but believed in the one that this sign points us to. Amen. Let us pray together. Gracious and almighty God, we praise you for the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We praise you that he did not consider, humility, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself and he made himself nothing. The Creator came into this world He he stooped so low as to the Roman cross so that through his death there might be life for all who would believe in him. Thank you that he has come to usher in that new era of superabundant blessing and joy. And we praise you that there is coming that day when his kingdom will be consummated, when we will be in that new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells and all the glory will go to his infinitely worthy name. And so help us to rejoice in him we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to sing our closing hymn, number 676 in the praise hymn book. To God be the glory, great things he has done, so loved he the world that he gave us his son.